We ask our Heavenly Father that you would speak to us now by your word, through your spirit, and we ask, Lord, that as we look at this chapter, that we would be blown away by what you're doing in this world and what you've done for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the musical Hamilton, it talks a lot about leaving a legacy. It's about leaving a mark in life. It's about making a dint in history. It's about having an impact on the generations that follow. Uh, Sometimes people do that by their remarkable acts of wisdom or kindness or courage. Sometimes they do it by writing a book that changes the world. Sometimes they do it by building things. Right at the start of the Bible, people gathered together with their common language at one place so that they could build a tower that would reach the heavens. And so they said in Genesis 11, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They built a building so that they could make a name for themselves, so that they could leave a mark, so that they could have a legacy. But God saw them and responded. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. Other than Noah's big boat, this is probably the first big thing that humans built, certainly to try and make a name for themselves. A building is something that people have done since the beginning of time, and it can bring about great outcomes, but it can also bring about great evil, because building can be good and it can be evil. And today we're going to see some more details about the building of the greatest religious building in history, Solomon's Temple. Last week we looked at chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Kings, and when we did so we learned about the building of the temple. We learned about how the king of Tyre was delighted to be involved in this building project, so he supplied top quality cedar wood as they built the temple to the Lord. And then we heard about the perfectly hewn stone blocks and the serenity of the, of the building site. And we heard about the promise that God made to be amongst his people, even though they failed to remain faithful to him. The temple was built in about seven years. And now we come to some more building work. Chapter 7. We're going to hear about how Solomon built his palace and how he built other buildings as well. And we'll learn all sorts of things about the decorations on the outside of the temple and a whole lot of the religious items that were handcrafted from bronze. To be honest with you, this is the kind of chapter when you're reading right through the Bible, start to finish, you get to this chapter and you say, blah, 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 building stuff, bronze, blah, 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 let's get to the action. But tonight we're going to spend half an hour looking at it. Are we crazy? No, it's God's word. It's more than just a whole lot of design and construction and fit out. It is actually full of stuff that will help us as followers of Jesus in 2021. How? Well, buckle up, you'll see. Because I think we're going to see some wonderful things about God and his gospel and about his king who rules the universe. And so it begins by turning from the temple 
to the palace. Chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon also built a palace for himself, and it took him 13 years to complete the construction. How long did the temple take to build? Seven years. How long would the palace take to build? 13 years. So what does this tell us about how Solomon viewed the different buildings? Some have said, oh, it's that he valued his his palace far more than the temple because he spent five more years on it. Maybe Solomon was more keen to make a name for himself than he was to have a place for God. Or maybe it's just that the temple had more people working on it, so it happened faster. It's quite possible. And he did actually start with the temple. He said, until that's done, I'm not even going to think about my place. I think Solomon cared more about a house for the Lord than a house for the king. But the thing is that there's still value in making a palace for God's king. Because the ministry of the Lord's king works alongside the ministry of the Lord. Both of them are there together. They needed a palace as well as a temple. And that is because God is present in his temple and he rules through his king. I'll say that again. He's he's present in his temple and he rules through his king. Now in time, spoiler alert, we'll see that Jesus is both the ark in the temple and the king in the palace together. But we're not quite there yet. For now, we want to learn a bit about the palace so that we can learn about God's rule, the rule of God's king. And we learn about three buildings. Firstly, verse 2. One of Solomon's buildings was called the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. There were four rows of cedar pillars, and the great cedar beams rested on the pillars. Uh, Probably about twice the size of the temple, which is interesting. It was used more than likely to store armour and other valuable things. That Then a few verses later, we read in verse 6, Solomon also built the Hall of Pillars, which was 75 feet long, 45 feet wide. There was a porch in front along with a canopy supported by pillars. Another building, similar in size to the temple, may be attached to the front of the first building, but really we're not told much about it at all. That's all we know about the Hall of Pillars. Whereas the detail we got with the temple, whoa, so much more. But then we get the next building, verse 7. Solomon also built the throne room, known as the Hall of Justice, where he sat to hear legal matters. It was panelled with cedar from floor to ceiling. That's all we hear about it. That's it. But it's actually a very, very important building. I wonder if you look there, if you can see just why. What is it about this throne room, the hall of justice, that matters so much? Well, it's the room in which the king sat in his throne. Very important. And this room is the hall of justice, where the king heard legal matters, or literally, that he would judge. See, when the king sat on his throne... His key responsibility was to judge. The key role of the king was to judge. When we think of judges, we think of courtrooms and guilty or not guilty and all that sort of stuff. But here, as he sits on his throne, he does the judging. 
But it's more than just what modern judges do in courtrooms. It's more about delivering righteousness. And that's what the people wanted most out of their king. Back before they had a king, they said in 1 Samuel 8, we want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. That's what they expected from their king to be doing. The king would bring them peace and then he'd bring them justice or righteousness. It's a bit of a bumpy ride. Saul, David, now we've got Solomon. But in a sense, we have a king who promises to do just this. John Woodhouse, in his very good commentary on this, suggests that Psalm 72 is a prayer by King David for his son, King Solomon. This is quite interesting. It's a prayer by dad for his son, King Solomon. Have a look at what it says about justice and judging. I'm just going to read five verses initially and then one later. Firstly, it's a psalm of Solomon or to Solomon or for Solomon. Give your love of justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity for all and may the, king, may the hills be fruitful. Help him to defend the poor, to rescue the children of the needy and to crush their oppressors. May they fear you as long as the sun shines, as long as the moon remains in the sky. Yes, forever. There's a whole lot more in that psalm. It sort of talks about what Solomon's rule should be like. Why don't you have a look at it during the week? 72, Psalm 72, get into it, see all the verses. It basically says what God's king is to do, and it's what Jesus did, who was the ultimate son of David, the ultimate king of God's people, especially as we read this verse, the verse 17 of the psalm. He says, May the king's name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun shines. May all nations be blessed through him and bring him peace. I bring him praise. It's by David, about Solomon, but ultimately about Jesus. And the judging that happened in the throne room is a shadow of the righteousness that Jesus would bring as a blessing to all the nations. Anyway, after mentioning his living quarters briefly, we hear about the stones, verse 9. From foundation to eaves, all these buildings were built from huge blocks of high-quality stone cut with saws and trimmed to exact measures on all sides. Same sort of principle as the, king, as the temple was for, the, uh, for God. Precious cutting of stones. And then around all the complex was the courtyard, skipping to verse 12. The walls of the great courtyard were built so that there was one layer of cedar beams between every three layers of finished stone, just like the walls of the inner courtyard of the Lord's temple with its entry room. The palace and the temple were integrated into this one big complex where the rule of the king integrated with the presence of the Lord. The palace and the temple were together. The palace and the temple were together. So at least in this point in, God, in the history of God's people, we see what it's like when God's people gather in God's place under God's rule. This is it here. It's a special moment. It won't last, but at least for now it's there. Because God's kings didn't follow David. They didn't follow Solomon. And so what we have there is a, a glimpse of what it should be like. A glimpse of what it means 
for there to be a king who rules justly. And it's a glimpse of the ultimate king, Christ Jesus. But now to understand more about the rule of Jesus, we go back to the temple and in particular the decorations and the fittings. Uh, You might be thinking, who cares about pillars and basins and water carts? Well, hopefully in a little while you won't think that. You'll go, ah, whoa, I get that. Boy, that's big for me as I follow Jesus today. We've only had 12 verses about the palace. And that's it, because we've got to get right back to the temple, because that's where the action really is. And so Solomon goes and he gets a specialised subcontractor, verses 13 and 14. King Solomon then asked for a man named Huram to come from Tyre. He was half Israelite, since his mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father had been a craftsman in bronze from Tyre. Huram was extremely skillful and talented in any work, and all that he came to do, the metal work for King Solomon. King Solomon had a lot of bronze work to do, and he needed to get the go-to bronze guys. Like, if you've got to get bronze work done, who do you get? You get Huram. You get him, he's the guy from Tyre. It's not King Hiram from Tyre that we heard about last time, it's King Huram, just in case you're wondering. But the reason that he needed expertise in bronze is because the tabernacle that was built at the time of Moses was full of bronze stuff. Bronze bits here and there and everywhere. And what he was building in the temple was a replica of the tabernacle but bigger and better. Basically, the tabernacle is going to be in a solid building and all the things that were used in worshipping God were going to be rebuilt, but bigger and better. And of course, it needed to be very least in bronze, like the tabernacle was. And so we see here that the bronze tabernacle things get upgraded. It's all going to be this massive upgrade. And as we see this, you've got to remember that the tabernacle, which was this mobile tent temple, it symbolised the very presence of God. You might say, oh, so God's only there and he's not everywhere else? No, God's everywhere. He's made the universe. He rules the universe. Don't worry about that. But he set up a system in the Old Testament where his presence and his peace could be experienced in a physical place. You could actually point to the tent and say, that's where the presence of God is. That's where God's action is. And it's from there that he's blessing us. Even though he's everywhere and you can pray to him everywhere, there was something special about that. And the way in which God's people approached the box that was in there, the the Ark of the Covenant, it sort of symbolized the way that they dealt with God. Because the tabernacle symbolized the presence of God. The tabernacle symbolised the presence of God. That's why all this fancy religious stuff really matters. It's a little bit like you've got a photo of a loved one. Let's imagine the old days, like a paper photo, not just one on a device. right? So you've got this little paper photo. If you take a photo of your brother or sister or son or parent or whatever, and you then stick pins in it, and you scribble all over it and, you know, give them a fake moustache and funny eyes and horns or something like that, and you're poking and prodding at it, uh, you're kind of attacking it. You're kind of not just attacking the photo, you're sort of attacking them in a way. 
And, and that's why if, if someone defaces your face somewhere on a little piece of paper and they say, oh, look, look what I did to you, you kind of think, oh, that doesn't matter. Yes, it does. I, I, I'd like a much bigger moustache than that, you know, something down here rather than just the little, little one. But you feel it because you know that that photo represents who you are in a sense. And so it was like that with the temple and with God. And that's why Solomon wants the best bronze possible. Okay? And it starts here, verse 15. Huram cast two bronze pillars, each 27 feet tall and 18 feet in circumference. All right, we want to talk about big things. These are big pillars. Solid bronze pillars. Think about it. 27 feet tall and 18 feet in circumference. Okay, so that 18 feet in circumference, you know, it's around about nearly six feet wide. So it's, you know, it's about that wide and it's about 27 feet. I'm, you know, nearly six. So, you know, four and a bit of me. Seriously big bit of solid bronze. And then on the top, he then had a, a, it's called a capital. Okay, so you've got the, the, the pillar itself and then the capital's the little thing at the top. Um, and we hear a bit about it, quite a bit of detail, actually. He, he says in verse 16 to 20, For the tops of the pillars he cast bronze capitals, each seven and a half feet tall. Uh, each capital was decorated with seven sets of lattice work and interwoven chains. He also encircled the lattice work with two rows of pomegranates to decorate the capitals over the pillars. The capitals on the columns inside the entry room were shaped like water lilies, and they were six feet tall. The capitals on the two pillars had 200 pan pomegranates in two rows around them beside the rounded surface next to the lattice work. They were seriously large and seriously ornate. How much did we hear about the palace? You know, he had one. It was big. But let's get back to the temple. Let's talk about the pomegranates. These were two giant fancy pillars made from bronze. They were massive. Solid bronze. Can you believe that? And they were garden-like. There's a bit of a theme in garden stuff throughout the temple. You remember from last time. and just fits in, really. Now, you might think that, that perhaps Solomon was just a little bit nervous about keeping the roof on the temple. So he kind of over-engineered everything just a little bit. You know, the architect came back and then the builder and, they, and then Solomon's like, I don't care, make some really big pillars. I don't want the roof to blow off. No. Uh, it was all for show. It didn't hold up the roof at all. They just stood there to look at. How bizarre. Well, it's not bizarre if it's actually got a message to it, if it's actually there for a reason. It's actually there, in a sense, for decoration, but for a very important purpose. Because we read in verse 21 that Huram set the pillars at the entrance of the temple, one towards the south and one towards the north. And he named the one on the south Jachin and the one on the north Boaz. They each were decorative, but they each had a word. Now, just their size and their beauty would have, would have sent a powerful message. And all of the, the garden stuff, you're thinking, wow, that's so ornate. It's so beautiful. And how do you do that with bronze? That's amazing. But they also had a word of revelation. And it was the name on the pillars. This is pretty important. Don't blink this or you might miss it, but I want to slow down. Have a look. You know, when you're looking at looking at this, like I was looking at it a week or so ago, I'm reading through, la, 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 yeah, I've got to preach on this. Ooh, uh, yeah, Jake and Boaz, yeah, let's move on. 
But if I happen to know enough Hebrew, I know a little bit, but not this much, I would know that these two names mean something special. It's not just like, well, I need a name for a dog, I need a name for a pillar, Jacob sounds good. It actually has special names with special meanings. And the first is, Jacob means he will establish. He will establish. It's what the Lord promised to David about his son Solomon. David was promised something by the Lord about Solomon. Back in 2 Samuel 7, he says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Three times, it's right there. It's what happened now, right here. As Solomon's got his temple and his palace and his throne, the kingdom of God is established. And every time they walk into the temple, every time they look at the temple, they see it all there, they'd be reminded that the kingdom of God is now established. It wasn't before, but now it is. And it's up there, Jacob, established. It's interesting to see how companies are now following what the pillars of the temple do. If companies have been around for more than a few years, they'll often say, Billabong, established 1973. Or Vegemite, established 1922. If there was a tagline for the kingdom of God, it would say, the kingdom of God, established 957 BC. It's this moment. He said, I will establish, I will establish, I will establish. And then in this ridiculously amazing solid bronze thing, it says... Established. There it is. Wow. It's firmly established. Friends, in these uncertain times, in these confusing times, in these changing times, it is a comfort to know that your faith, my faith, the faith in Christ is established. It's not something that someone came up in a weird dream a couple of nights ago and said, whoa. I'm never going to believe this. No, this is really old. We didn't invent this. It's historic. It's reliable. It's established. And upon it, we can stand firm as we stand upon Christ, the solid rock. Well, the other pillar's got a name as well. And the name is Boaz. Boaz, which means in him is strength. In him is strength. The kingdom's now established. How did it get there? Was it because Solomon was powerful? Was it because Solomon was wealthy? Was it because Solomon was good at politics? No, it's because of the strength of the Lord. That's how it got established. The Lord's strength established the kingdom. He is strong. And that's what established it. But there's something else about the name Boaz. It's a cool name, Boaz. It's, it's the name of the great-grandfather of David. The book of Ruth. I love the book of Ruth. In so many ways, the most important thing in the book of Ruth is right at the end where it says, oh, blah, 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 Boaz was the great-grandfather of David. Huh? Whoa. 
It's a reminder here of the connection of the promises that God gave and kept. The whole kingdom is tied up in the line of David. So that's what we've got here on these pillars. Established strength. But there's something else. Something else very important that Hurram the Hurram the bronze guy, the bronze guy was going to make. And it had a whole lot to do with water. Lots to do with water. Verse 23. Then Hurram cast a great round basin 15 feet across from rim to rim, called the sea. It was seven and a half feet deep and about 45 feet in circumference. It's kind of a bit like the size of a swimming pool, but it's out of solid bronze. That's unbelievable. It is a giant bronze pool, and it's called the sea. Now, why would it be called the sea? What's the significance of the sea? I think it's likely that it's a reminder that God himself made the sea. And this particular sea here was for washing the sacrifices. And the one in the temple here is so much bigger than the one that was in the tabernacle that they went around with. I mean, you could imagine them saying, how are we going to move this thing? (laughs) We're not going to attach it to a donkey. It's big. It's massive. And it was decorated like it was part of a garden. No surprises there. It was encircled just below its rim by two rows of decorative gourds. There were about six gourds per foot all the way around, and they were cast as part of the basin. Garden. What's to do with the garden? Again, I think it's talking about the Garden of Eden. That was the place where God was with his people, and everything was just fine. It's a picture of that moment again. That moment that that God is with them, and it is good. Good. Very good. But this big, huge bowl thing had an interesting support. Verse 25. We read that the sea was placed on a base of 12 bronze oxen, all facing outwards. Three faced north, three faced west, three faced south, three faced east, and the sea rested on them. What's that talking about? Well, there's 12 strong animals. Uh, It could well be talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. I, I think that seems legit. They here are all, in a sense, cleansed at the temple by the water of the Lord. They're all there. You walk past it, you see 12 things, and you say, that's all of us. All of Israel was cleansed. And it's more then is given to us about its appearance. Verse 26, we read that the walls of the sea were about three inches thick, uh, and uh, hang on, I think I've clipped too many. Um, three inches thick, and its rim flared out like a cup and resembled a water lily blossom, and it could hold around 11,000 gallons of water, which is about 40,000 litres. It's kind of like this swimming pool thing made of solid bronze. That is an amazing thing in and of itself, but what does it represent? Well, in ancient times, the sea was scary. Now, for us today, we're thinking, oh, bigger the seas, bigger the waves, bring it on. But back then, it was a terrifying place. But have a look in Revelation 21. That's, that's why we say, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was always also gone. It's like, praise the Lord. If you're a surfer, you're thinking, oh, I was looking forward to heaven, but anyway, that's okay, I'll get over it. No, you see... Everything that the sea stood for, for chaos, uncertainty, for fear, is gone. 
The sea was scary, but in the temple, it is tamed. It is controlled. It's just like when Jesus said to the sea, be quiet, and everything went quiet. It's the same kind of things there. It's a reminder here that God is in control of his creation. At this time of pandemic and tsunamis and bushfires and floods, the sea is there and God's got his thumb on it. It's all covered. And if he's in control of all those things, he's also in control of your own personal crises as well. Relationship breakdowns. Mental illness. Health crises. Financial fears. The Lord rules the sea. He is in control of everything. But this water also represents cleansing. Cleansing of our sin. Washing away our guilt and shame. That's what's happened at the temple. That's what happens when we come to the altar. That's what happens when we come to the cross. It's what was promised much later by the prophet Zechariah when he said in chapter 13, verse 1, that on that day a fountain will be opened for the dynasty of David and for the people of Jerusalem, a fountain to cleanse them from all their sins and impurity. It was looking forward to a time when water would bring cleansing from sin and impurity. And then we fast forward more to the book of Hebrews and we read in Hebrews 10, 19, So, brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. That's the big third at the end of the temple. Because of the blood of Jesus, by his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into his presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. That, as the writer of the Hebrews talks about the temple with all the stuff, he's thinking about that water. And he's thinking about how that water cleanses us, washes us with pure water. If you're a follower of Jesus, I am sure that you struggle with sin. I don't think I've met Christians. I say, how's your sin life going? Yeah, pretty well. Nothing to worry about. If that's you, I'd love to have a chat with you afterwards. I struggle with sin. The Bible says we all struggle with sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, you sin, you say, ah, again? And if it's a private sin, you think, ah, again? If it's a public sin, if it's a sin that hurts someone else, is that extra level of, ah, again? You cannot wash yourself clean. You can scrub yourself with water and soap, with detergent, with acid. You cannot get it off you. You cannot deal with your sin in your own strength. You are unable to deal with your guilt and your shame. Only the pure water that flows from the cross of Christ is the water that can truly deal with your sins. Only Christ's water can cleanse your sins. Don't try and do it on your own and say, I'm just going to work harder at dealing with my sin. 
What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if you're not sure if you've actually been forgiven of your sin, if you haven't come to Jesus yet and you're just not 100% sure, you've got to sort that out. Do it tonight. Talk to Jesus. Say, I'm I'm scared. I'm sorry. I've got this sin and I just can't manage it myself. And I know I'm guilty. Would you please forgive me? And Jesus will say, I forgive you. Your sins are washed away. If you haven't done that yet, why don't you do that tonight for sure? Well, we could wrap it up there, but... There's so much stuff about water carts. I'm only going to say a little bit, (laughs) but it's the same sort of theme. Huram also made 10 bronze water carts, six feet long, six feet wide, and four and a half feet tall. They were constructed with side panels, braced with crossbars. The panels and the crossbars were decorated with carved lions, oxen, and cherubim. Above and below the lions were wreath decorations. Each of these carts had four bronze wheels and bronze axles. There were supporting posts for the bronze basins at the corners of the carts. These supports were decorated on each side with carvings of wreath. Uh, Ten mobile basins... Sort of like, you know, little water trucks sort of things. Extravagant detail. I'm not going to go into all that. You can read that on your own and go, whoa, they really care about this stuff. And they do. It was amazing. One little thing, though, each cart had a little bronze basin as well, presumably so that they could actually get to the water and not have to go in over the top. But skipping a whole lot of verses, we see where they are located. Verse 39, he set five water carts on the south side of the temple and five on the north side. And the great bronze basin called the sea was placed near the southeast corner of the temple. I don't know if you've thought about this before. I don't think I fully have got it before looking at this passage in detail. But there's water everywhere in the temple. There's water features all over the place. A huge big one in the middle and then 10 other ones all around the edge. Water everywhere. Water for cleansing. Water for washing. Water for life. Water was in the temple. And so it should come as no surprise that when the prophet Ezekiel has an amazing vision of the temple, as he's there middle of nowhere, dreaming of the temple, and the vision comes to him, he sees water, water everywhere. Ezekiel 47.1, In my vision, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and there I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple and passing to the right of the altar on its south side. Interesting, isn't it? And where does the water go? What does it do? Skip me to verse 8 of Ezekiel 47. It says, The river flows east through the desert into the valley of the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. That would be a miracle. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. Something about that future temple. And it's something about life-giving water. And I wonder if as you're hearing this, it's making you think, ooh, I reckon I might see a connection with Jesus there. Jesus, as he stood near the second temple there, he he was perhaps even near the sea or the, the water tubs. Probably not the, the same ones because they probably got destroyed, but the new ones that were made after them. And he is there in John 7, 37. And what is he saying? On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty, 
may come to me, Jesus said, as he's there in the temple courts. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the, for the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. I don't think I've made that connection so clearly before, but there's heaps of water all around the temple. And Jesus is there with the water. And he says, ah, you're thirsty? Come to me. I'm the living water. See, Jesus right there could say that he cleansed our sins. He could say that he quenched our thirst. And we understand the depths of his promise because Solomon and his mate Huram built an amazing building. That's why it makes so much sense to us. That extra level, the 3D, the colour, the wow of what Jesus says about the living water makes sense because we've done the hard work in God's word tonight. We understand the depths of his promise because Solomon and his mate made an amazing building. A building that could have just made a name for Solomon. Solomon's temple, how good am I? Instead of Boaz and that other guy was called Solomon, Solomon. Why not? Do it in bronze. It lasts a while. No. It was a building that ultimately pointed us to Christ. Solomon's building pointed us to Christ. It showed the character of God. It showed the character of his king. And amongst other things, it showed us the cleansing power of the water from the temple. The temple who we now know as Jesus. All those bronze water features showed the need for cleansing. And now we can be truly washed and satisfied in Christ. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Christ is calling. Find refreshing at the cross of living waters. Love, forgiveness, vast and boundless. Christ, he is our living water. There's a river that flows with mercy and love, bringing joy to the city of our God. There, our hope is secure. Do not fear anymore. Praise the Lord of living waters.